Hello all and welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast brought to you as ever by Paul the true crime enthusiast of the title and the show's creator and host. Thanks very much for joining me as ever guys and a special thank you also to my latest Patreon supporters that's Heatherly Cates and someone simply known as Catherine. It's very much appreciated as ever. I'm overwhelmed by the support for the show and I'd like to take on board any ideas you guys may have for the show. Stuff or features that you'd like to see, ideas for cases, whatever. I really will get back to everyone who gets in touch. I think it'd be rude if I didn't. So please, if you want to get in touch, please by all means do. I hope by now that you know it's an open and constant invite. If you don't know where I can be found, well all the details about following or contacting the show are with this week's episode notes. Now I'd already recorded last week's episode when the news broke and therefore I may seem a bit late to the party but Twitter and other social media have been in an absolute meltdown of late over the news that the long sought after Golden State Killer has finally been apprehended all down to the magic of DNA. Now I know this is a popular and celebrated case that's been covered by many true crime podcasts and no doubt now many updates will now either be being or have been written concerning it. I must admit it wasn't a case I was too familiar with and it was only after the arrest of the suspect that I've read up on it in any great detail. From what I have read, this is a real nasty piece of work responsible for some absolute horror and it's great that he's finally been caught after so many years at large. It just goes to show that you should never give up hope in any of the cold cases that are out there because even so many years later these people may still be caught and may still be punished. The East Area Rapist, Original Night Stalker, Golden State Killer case, whatever you want to call it. Well, it just proves that, doesn't it? So I'm glad you're caught, Golden State Killer. You are long, long overdue paying for your crimes. So the promos that I have to share with you this week are those of the Fiercely Altered podcast, hosted by Ember and Quinn Hammond, and Murderous Miners, which is hosted by Simone Matthews. Links to both shows can be found in my show notes this week and you can find each on iTunes, Podcast Addict or pretty much wherever you get your shows from. I shall pass you over to the hosts right now. Hi, I'm Quinn. And I'm Ember. And this is The Fat Pod. Also known as the Fiercely Altered Perspective Podcast. Here we take topics and put our own twist on them, giving you another perspective to stories that you know and love, and some you've never heard about, combining our interests, deep research, humor, and storytelling into one complex podcast. Talking heavy on true crime, plus other great topics such as vampires, cults, cannibalism, aliens, conspiracy theories, mythology, folklore, creepy history, and and how the hell we haven't managed to completely kill off the human race. You can subscribe to us anywhere podcasts can be found, simply by searching for Fiercely Altered Perspective. Be sure to follow us on social media, all at The Fat Pod, and join our Facebook group, The Fap Lounge, to join our discussion threads, to give us your perspective on each episode, and get a chance to get a shout-out on the next show. This is Murderous Miners, Killer Kids, bringing you the frightening and truly insane tales of children with the thirst to kill. Kindergarten through 12th grade murderers. True stories thoroughly researched. 
Join us weekly for new tales of parents' worst nightmares on Murderous Minors, Killer Kids. Sound pretty good then? Sold? I hope you get to go and check them out. Delve a bit into the true crime community if you aren't already familiar with each one. So off the back of that, back to my own show. And this week on The True Crime Enthusiast, it's the first this series of a multi-part episode. And it's a case that I wanted to recount since I first started doing the show back in September last year. Now I get that people like to binge and it's how things seem to be right now. But the case in question is so complex and there's so much to recount about it in all that I hope by the time this case is recounted over the subsequent episodes you'll see exactly why it warranted a multi-part episode. The case stems from the early 1990s and it deals with one of the most ruthless, cunning and downright evil minds that British criminal history has ever known. Learning of the sheer scale of the crimes of this individual the preparation and execution involved and the ruthlessness in which they were carried out with, well I'm pretty sure it will make you agree with that. Please be advised that this episode does contain descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look back at part one of a collective case that I'm going to call the One-Legged Train Spotter. Part one, the murder of Julie Dart. On the 1st of March 1973, a baby girl was born in the Yorkshire seaside town of Bridlington to Lynn and Alec Hill and was registered as Julianne Hill, the older sister to Paul who followed just a year later. In 1977, Julie's parents divorced and she and her mother and brother moved down to Leeds with Lynn's new man, electrician Ian Dart. The family were allocated a council property at 36 Holland Park Crescent on the Gipton Estate in Leeds and on the 4th of March 1987, Lynn and Ian married. She then changed the surnames of the children from Hill to Dart legally by deed poll and thereafter the two children called Ian Dad. At school, Julie was described as a bright but uncommitted student but one who excelled at athletics particularly the 800 metres and 1500 metre events. She was good enough to represent her school, Foxwood High, and was also good enough to make the West Yorkshire team for her age grade. Whilst Julie was still at school, she took a couple of part-time jobs, as most youngsters do, to gain inroads into the world of work, as well as some independence and a bit of a cash income. She worked as a cleaner at the home of a local man named Michael Walter, and also worked as a waitress at the Grill and Griddle Cafe on Hare Hills Road, where she met and began a relationship with a boy called Dominic Murray. Julie was to leave school at age 16, and by age 17 had left home and moved into a flat to live with Dominic, who she'd become engaged to. By all accounts, their relationship was a turbulent one, with Dominic being especially fond of a drink, and was known to become violent on occasion when both had been drinking. The couple's relationship would be on and off like a light switch and eventually Julie had moved back in with her mother following the breakdown of her mother's marriage. Lynn Dart was close to her daughter and she and Julie were described more like sisters than mother and daughter, often out socialising and shopping together. Even their arguments were described as more sibling-like than mother and daughter. Julie's greatest ambition was to have a career in the armed forces 
and unsurprisingly for such a fit athletic girl, it was to be as a physical training instructor in the army. In December 1990, she had visited a local recruitment office and had begun an application to join the WRAC as a driver. Believe me, these applications to join the armed forces can be quite lengthy and time-consuming, but by June 1991, Julie was due to take her final selection examination. She'd passed a medical assessment, despite having mild asthma and having omitted mentioning the severe claustrophobia that she suffered from. Just before the final examination, however, the recruiting office was contacted by Julie's former employer Michael Walter, who informed the office of a situation that may have bearing upon Julie's application. Michael told the story of how, when she was a schoolgirl cleaning for him, Julie had stolen a credit card from his home and had used it to obtain over £500 in cash. He claimed Julie had admitted liability for the theft and was paying off the debt that she owed but he was concerned that if she joined the army, she may cease on finishing paying off the debt. This was discussed with Julie when she attended her final selection tests in Guildford on the 10th of June, tests that she passed with flying colours, and Julie denied stealing any money, whilst Mr Walter continued to maintain that she had. It's not known as to how much truth, if any, was in this accusation, but perhaps out of worry that something like that hanging over one's head may stall the army application, Julie stated that she would pay the money somehow so her career could go ahead. Julie's solution to do this was to take another part-time role to earn money. She told her mother Lynn that she was working on an evening shift at Leeds Hazelton Laboratories sterilising medical syringes and she told Dominic Murray, with whom she was now back in a relationship with, that she was working as an evening orderly at Leeds General Infirmary. Now in reality, Julie was working throughout the evenings, but in a completely different role to both of these. She'd come to the conclusion that the quickest, surefire way to earn that amount of money was as a sex worker in the red light district of Leeds, and had begun to turn up in the Chapeltown area, asking the already established sex workers there for advice on how much to charge clients for services and where was the best place to take clients for business. This was the best way Julie could think to earn some quick and easy money and to keep her army dream alive, and with her pretty looks and athletic slim figure, she hoped that it wasn't a role she would have to spend a long time doing. On Tuesday the 9th of July, Julie telephoned her mother at work and told her that she was off to work herself and would get a taxi home. She told Lynn that she would be back before midnight and asked that if Lynn went to bed earlier that she leave the door unlocked for her. She then set off to Chapeltown and by 8.30pm Julie was on the corner of Spencer Place. She went for a drink with two of the other girls who worked the area and then telephoned Dominic from the pub, The White Swan, telling him that she would stay at her mother's house that evening and would see him tomorrow. The three girls then returned to the Spencer Place area, where Julie and one of the girls picked up a client each. They then spent the money that they'd earned at a tandoori takeaway, and when they had returned, the third girl had gone. Julie's companion, a girl that she'd known since her school days, stayed with Julie until about 11pm when she decided to call it a night. Julie said that she was going to try business for another half hour or so and when her friend left, Julie was last seen sitting on a wall by herself between 11 and 11.30pm. Julie hadn't returned to her mother's that evening 
and Lynn Dart thought that she'd opted to spend the night with Dominic, but Dominic didn't see Julie the next day. Nobody did. She'd already been reported as a missing person by Friday the 12th of July, when Dominic received a strange and very worrying letter that had been written by Julie. It had been addressed to him at his sister's house where he often stayed, and had been posted in Huntington in Cambridgeshire the previous day. The letter, a mix of normal print and bold, read as follows. Hello Dominic, help me please. I've been kidnapped and I am being held as a personal security until next Monday night. Please go and tell my mum straight away. Love you so much, Dominic. Mum, phone the police straight away and help me. I've not eaten anything, but I have been offered food. Feeling a bit sick, but I'm drinking two cups of tea per day. Mum, Dominic, help me. Dominic, my mum will be in at five every night. Or phone, yes, phone her, 832-600, extension 3844. If not working, go to her house. Love you all, Julie. Dominic immediately called the number given in the letter, which got him through to Leeds Polytechnic, where Lynn Dart worked. Lynn immediately left work and rushed around to his sister's house to read the letter, then made several telephone calls around various friends of Julie's in an attempt to discover where Julie might be. When she'd failed to track her down from this, she took the letter to the police. The same day, by the later afternoon post, Leeds Police received a lengthy typed ransom note that had also been posted in Huntington. It was incorrectly addressed to the old Leeds City Police and had been posted at 7pm the previous evening. The following has been broken down due to its length, but although it's summarised, the points made are in a chronological order. I do believe, however, that it is important here to repeat the intro to the note as verbatim just so the chilling and ruthless nature of the author's tone is emphasised. The letter began, A young prostitute has been kidnapped from the Chapeltown area last night, and will only be released unharmed if the conditions below are met. If they are not met, then the hostage will never be seen again. Also a major city centre store, in brackets not necessarily in Leeds, will have a firebomb explode at 5am, 17th of July. The ransom letter demanded £140,000 in cash, with a further £5,000 in two bank accounts complete with cash cards, PIN numbers and a withdrawal limit of £200 per day. The lump sum of the large amount was also to be comprised and packaged in a certain way. It was to be made up of used £50, £10 and £5 notes, wrapped in polythene, then wrapped in brown paper and secured with a sturdy nylon cord that was to have a substantial loop in the top. The instructions for how the package should be constructed went into considerable detail, with specific diagrams of how it should look and exactly how it should measure, and a demand that the polythene inner wrapping should be at least 120 microns. A policewoman, dressed in a light blue skirt and carrying the money in a shoulder bag, was to go to Birmingham New Street Station for 6pm on Tuesday the 16th of July and wait in a telephone kiosk inside the platform number 9 waiting room. She would be telephoned with further instructions, which would take her from telephone box to telephone box to pick up further instruction along a network of remote country lanes where the presence of any police vehicles would be obvious. 
Eventually, the instruction would lead to a location where a rope with a dog lead clip attached to it and the policewoman was to attach the parcel of money to it then return to her car. A young man would then come and collect the money, but this would not be the kidnapper or extortionist, but rather a young man who used a nearby lover's lane with his girlfriend every Tuesday and whose girlfriend would be held hostage by the kidnapper until the ransom was collected. Once the money was safely received by the kidnapper, the hostage would be released a day later unharmed, and police would be contacted by midnight with the name and address of the city centre store with a firebomb planted in it. It was strict that no publicity must be given to the threat until after the money had been received. Now although some officers were of the opinion that the whole thing was an elaborate hoax, the senior detective in charge of the case, Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor, had a gut feeling that it wasn't. The author of the letter seemed to have planned every angle of an elaborate blackmail and kidnap plot to great detail, and the detail that was described within the letter was surely far too specific to just be a hoax. Why would someone go to so much bother? Bob Taylor didn't think that it was a hoax. He was an experienced investigator, having cut his teeth as a junior officer some years before on the Yorkshire Ripper Inquiry. And it was this and the hard lessons that had been learned from the protracted failure that the Ripper Inquiry became that made him take any potential threat such as this very seriously. The ransom letter was taken ever more seriously when inquiries began into the missing Julie's life and it was soon established that she had very recently indeed begun working as a sex worker in the Chapeltown Red Light District. So at 6pm on the 16th of July, a female police officer was in place in the waiting room at Birmingham New Street Station, as had been directed in the ransom letter. At 6 minutes past 7, the telephone rang in the waiting room, and she answered it, as directed, by saying, Julie speaking, but the line suddenly went dead. In the meanwhile, the West Yorkshire Police had interviewed Julie's friends and family and had initial suspicions that fell on two men, Dominic Murray and Julie's former employer, Michael Walter. It was easy to rule Dominic out. He had a broken ankle at the time that was set in plaster and so could not have been able to drive a vehicle. This left Michael Walter, a 41-year-old bachelor. Now he did have a possible motive for wishing Julie harm, the stolen £500, and he was renowned throughout the estate where he lived, the Gipton estate where Julie also lived, for his friendships with several teenage girls. There was never any evidence to suggest that any of these friendships were sexual relationships, but by now the rumour mill had begun to circulate around the estate about Julie's disappearance, and that Michael Walter was somehow responsible. Rumours such as that he had killed her and hidden the body, and the local pubs buzzed with threats that Julie's family and friends would take the law into their own hands and sort him out. As a result, Michael Walter was taken into police custody, where he was to spend the next three days and nights. His house was thoroughly searched, and he was questioned about Julie's disappearance, but was ultimately released on Thursday the 18th of July, with police satisfied that he had nothing whatsoever to do with Julie's disappearance. Local feeling was so rife, though, that for his own protection, Michael was kept under 24-hour surveillance. The following day, 
a Lincolnshire farmer named Bob Skelton set out onto his land intending to secure some fencing to stop cattle straying into the fields, ahead of a planned drive of them along an old railway cutting that was in close proximity to the Skelton farm at Easton, near Grantham. Bob set out with his 18-year-old son, Andrew, and a YTS employee, Kevin Russell, and began securing the gates along the route with wire. Coming to the first field along the route, they just parked the Land Rover up and had lifted a coil of barbed wire out of the rear when they saw a pink and white bundle under an oak tree in the corner of the field. Used to people fly-tipping their rubbish, they thought at first that it was the usual dumped mattress or various household rubbish that people are forever leaving about to blight the countryside, but as they approached the bundle they saw that this was a bit different from the usual rubbish that was left out. Whatever it was, was wrapped in a pink and white striped sheet and had been secured with green rope. Andrew cut through the rope and the sheet came away to release the unmistakable smell of decomposition. Bob could also see a human arm. Leaving the two younger men guarding the bundle, he drove back to his farm and contacted police. When police arrived on the scene, the bundle was found to contain the severely decomposed naked body of a young woman who had been apparently battered to death. Home office pathologist Dr Stephen Jones arrived at the scene and made an examination of the body in situ. It was then photographed and the area sealed off and examined. There was a lack of blood or body tissue staining to the ground around or underneath the body when it was removed for examination, establishing that it could only have lain under the oak tree for only just a few hours. A full post-mortem examination was carried out by Dr Jones at Grantham and Kesteven Morgue, where cause of death was established to be due to head wounds. Two fractures to the skull were found, and the corresponding indentations to the back of the head, which was bizarrely completely bald when the body was discovered, had been caused by a heavy blunt instrument, thought to have been a hammer. There were also ligature marks found at the back of the neck, and it was concluded that the woman had been rendered unconscious by the blows to the head, and had then been garroted. There was no trace of any food found in the stomach, so she had not eaten for at least eight hours before her death. There was no sign of any defence wounds to the arms or hands, and none of her fingernails were scuffed or missing, suggesting that she'd not been able to put up any kind of fight against a killer, and had most likely been attacked either from behind or whilst restrained. There was no indication on the body to suggest that her wrists had been restrained, but there was a mark on the right ankle that looked as though they'd been caused by a chain or lock of some type. From the degree of decomposition to the body, Dr Jones believed that the young woman had been dead for either several weeks, or that the body had been kept in a warm environment, and it was too badly decomposed to establish whether there had been any sexual assault. From the relatively small amount of insect activity found with the body, it was of the opinion that up until 48 hours before it had been found in the field, the body had been kept stored in a sealed container. Now as is standard when an unidentified body is found in suspicious circumstances, a telex was sent out by Lincolnshire Police to all UK forces, asking them to check their missing persons files for any young woman who may fit the bill. In West Yorkshire, when the telex was read, Detective Superintendent Taylor read the description and contacted Lincolnshire Police to inquire as to whether the dead woman had a chipped front tooth. When it was confirmed that she did, with a sad hunch, 
Bob Taylor arranged for a check of Julie Dart's dental records to be made, and it was quickly established that the body in Lincolnshire was indeed that of Julie Dart. Further confirmation of this was made when both Julie's mother Lynn and Dominic identified a wishbone ring that had been found on the middle finger of the dead girl as belonging to Julie. So police were now faced with a victim that had been transported many miles away from where she'd last been seen, and one thing was certain. Whoever had killed Julie and dumped her body, it could not have been either of the two people police had initially had suspicions about. Dominic was unable to drive, and Michael Walter had been under constant police surveillance when the body was dumped. It now seemed that Julie had been chosen at random, as she'd been in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the killer who chooses a victim at random is that much harder to catch. But Julie's killer wanted to stay in touch with police. On Monday the 22nd of July, a typewritten letter from the same typewriter as the other communication was received by West Yorkshire Police. It had been posted at Leeds Railway Station on the Sunday, but the contents of the letter implied that it had been written a few days earlier. It read as follows. Words will never be able to express my regret that Julie Dart had to be killed, but I did warn what would happen if anything went wrong. At the time of this letter there has been no publicity. If you do not find the body in a few days, I will contact you as to the location. It will have to be moved today as it appears to be decomposing. She was not raped or sexually abused or harmed in any way until she met her end. She was tied up and hit a few blows to the back of the head to render her unconscious and then strangled. She never saw what was to happen, never felt no pain or knew anything about it. I still intend to carry out this campaign until I receive the monies, however many people suffer. In two weeks or so, I shall demonstrate my firebomb. I still require the same monies as before under the same conditions, if you want to avoid serious fire damage and any further prostitute's life. Following this correspondence, police complied with Julie's killer's instructions and placed a message reading, Let's try again for Julie's sake in the personal column of the Sun newspaper on Saturday 27th of July. By the 30th of July, police had received another letter, this time handwritten in block capitals and addressed again incorrectly to Leeds City Police, Millgate, a detail that was later to become crucial. This letter stated that the same policewoman who had been used in the failed Birmingham delivery was to be at a named telephone kiosk at Leicester Forest East Services on the M1 that day at 8.30pm. She was again to answer, Julie speaking, and would be given instructions to follow a trail, as per before, that would eventually lead to a pick-up point. She was to have the exact same amount of cash, comprised as before and packaged as before. Again, the cash would be collected by the male member of a courting couple, while the killer held the female at gunpoint at an undisclosed location. The same policewoman was at the arranged kiosk at the arranged time, and the telephone rang just after 8.30pm, but when she answered the telephone, a pre-recorded tape message was played to her that was incomprehensible. When she said that she couldn't understand the message, the telephone line went dead. She waited for another two hours, but no further call was received and the operation was stood down at 11pm. 
Police received a fourth letter on Thursday the 1st of August, again handwritten in capital letters, but this time posted in Coventry, saying that the caller would ring again at the same place and time on the following Tuesday. Despite a wait, no call was received. This was followed by a fifth letter, postmarked Nottingham, and received on the 5th of August, and typed, but this time on a different typewriter from the first two typewritten letters. It explained that the writer had been unable to find a suitable prostitute to take hostage on the Monday night, and that the courting couple he intended to use to collect the ransom drop were not there in the lover's lane on Tuesday evenings. This couple, the author added, were more important than the prostitute, as a prostitute can be eliminated at any time should the police not cooperate. The letter went on to say that the day would have to be changed to a Wednesday, and that he would contact the usual location, on Wednesday the 14th of August. Again, demonstrating how callous he was in nature, he had then referred to Julie Dart's body by saying, I did think of hiding her body till it was all over, but felt sorry for her. She was only killed because she saw where she was. So on the 14th of August, police were again back at the M1 service station at the usual time of 8.30pm, and this time the killer did call, saying that he had kidnapped a prostitute in Ipswich called Sarah Davis. This time, the ransom trail began. After demanding the registration number and description of the female police officer's car, she was directed north up the M1 motorway, and by 9.56pm, she was to be at a named telephone box in Wakefield in West Yorkshire. She was there on time, and the telephone rang, but when she tried to pick up the receiver, the cradle of the telephone jammed, and communication with the caller was lost. In South Yorkshire, the police there knew nothing of the West Yorkshire operation, so they did not connect when a suspicious package was spotted beneath a disused railway bridge at the southbound side of the M1 motorway in Barnsley the following morning. It consisted of a small grey container with two red LED lights peering out of the top and a length of coiled wire. Next to it was a white painted brick that had an envelope attached. Taking no chances for something looking so dodgy, the bomb squad attended the scene and destroyed it. The container was destroyed, but the white painted brick and envelope attached did remain. The envelope had a figure 3 stenciled on it, and inside was a stenciled note which directed the finder to a footbridge half a mile away that spanned the M1 motorway. Going there, police found another white painted brick, but nothing else. Another envelope, this time marked with a figure 2, was found taped under the shelf in a telephone box near Barnsley, and both later proved to be part of the ransom trail. When West Yorkshire police learned of this, they concluded that the trail had intended to lead them over the footbridge, which carried the Dove Valley Trail across the M1 where the officer would have attached the ransom package to a rope that was suspended from the walk above, and the killer would have pulled it down and been away. This theory was confirmed in part when the police received a sixth letter from the kidnapper, postmarked in Grantham, on the 19th of August. In this letter, which was littered with spelling mistakes and grammatical errors, the author explained that the claim of him having kidnapped another prostitute, and the whole ransom run, had been a hoax. There was never a Sarah Davis abducted, and instead, the whole exercise had been a ruse to learn police reaction and how police would counter his plans. 
all part of research for a greater demand later. Arrogantly, the author wrote, Game is now abandoned. Crime Watch UK will tell me most of what I wanted to know, but what I was really looking for was the package. I never envisaged any money in the package, but had made arrangements for the bug or transmit that would have been inside to be made inoperative. I wanted a sample of the type police would use. You will have to file your papers until I try again, which is what this was all about. As you know, I never picked anyone up in Ipswich or planted any device. I didn't need to following Julie's unfortunate death. You would cooperate in anything I said. For your records, Julie was picked up on Tuesday the 9th of July, 11.30pm, just off Round Hay Road, and was wearing jeans, not a skirt. I believe I mentioned last time the date and reason she died. The reason the body deteriorated so quickly was that it was kept in a wheelie bin in a greenhouse for two very hot days. I thought this was the best way to keep the body. The head was wrapped in a towel, but when this was removed to clean her up, her hair came away, stuck to the blood on the towel. The wheelie bin was used to transport the body to where you found her, although you will know that by the tracks. Following this letter, the blackmailer, kidnapper and killer of Julie Dart went to ground for two months, during which time West Yorkshire Police heard nothing from him and were left wondering where had he gone. Had he been arrested and imprisoned, or was he perhaps hospitalised, or had he even died? Then on the 15th of October, a now familiar letter was received at Milgarth Police Station in Leeds, addressed to West Yorkshire Police, Millgate Police Station, Leeds, West Yorkshire. The letter read, again with its grammatical and spelling errors, Ref Julie, brackets, with no hair. As you are nowhere near on my tail, the time has come to collect my £140,000 from you. I do not get any bigger sentence for two murders, and prostitutes are easy to pick up, but as this time you know I mean business, I don't need to pick one up until Monday, and I have perfected the pick-up. The money to be the same as before. On Wednesday 21st of October, the same WPC will be at the phone box on Platform 3 of Carlisle Station, at 8pm for message at 9.15pm. He hadn't gone anywhere or given up his game. He had several plans up his sleeve and he'd spent the quiet period putting one of them into action. He found a new target to blackmail as well and the potential threat this time wasn't just one life but several. The same day that West Yorkshire Police received the latest letter from Julie's killer, a large letter addressed to British Rail arrived at London's Euston Station with a second envelope that was enclosed within marked for the attention of a senior executive only. The letter was neatly typed, although contained grammatical and spelling errors, and read as follows. Unless we receive a cash payment of £200,000, we shall cause the derailment of an express train, either the DTV of an East Coast 225 or the DTV of a West Coast push-pull. A high-speed section has been selected and some materials already concealed nearby. Below is a drawing of how we intend to do so. The accompanying diagram demonstrated how a reinforced steel joist would be positioned on the track, angled upwards and braced against a railway sleeper to spear into the leading axles of a speeding locomotive. The letter continued, 
We are extremely serious about the course of action should you ignore this letter or no money is forthcoming. We expect you shall call the police, for any publicity or visible police action will, will result in us not communicating again. Should you ignore this letter, then you will be able to see how serious we were. Should you also pretend to go along with our demands, but do not deliver any money, then this will make us even madder than ignoring this letter. The £200,000 is to be made up as follows, exactly. £50,000 in new £50 notes packed in four bundles, not consecutive numbers. £50,000 in used £50 notes packed in four bundles. £40,000 new £20 notes packed in eight bundles. £40,000 new, new type £20 notes packed in eight bundles, not consecutive numbers. £20,000 used £10 notes. Next Monday, 21st of October, you will insert the following advert in the Evening Standard personal column. The train is ready to depart. On Wednesday the 23rd, two female employees of BR, preferably two members of the transport police, must be at Crew Station at 3pm. They must be in the car they will be using to deliver the money. The car must be a small metro or Nova type due to the width restriction later in the journey. It must be a three-door and have no aerials or phone. The rear seats must be folded up completely. One woman must stay in the car, the other to go to the phones on platform 3 and await a phone call at around 7pm. The person receiving the calls must wear a skirt and shoes and heels. We want no Olympic sprinter in trainers. The two women must have a good road atlas and good road direction sense. When she answers, she must say, Amanda speaking, so that we know we have the right person. She must just then listen. Note, as security against police ambush, we have an ace card to be played at the time the money is picked up. This you will learn later. But your females will not be harmed in any way if they attempt no heroics. There will be a firearm trained on the driver at the time of the pickup, but she will not see anyone. Chillingly, the footnote to the letter read in stark block capitals, Warning, your females will be in danger if money not real. This alarming, remarkable letter was passed at first to British Transport Police, who investigated as best they could, but did not ultimately have the resources or experience to deal with such a threat, if it was of course serious and serious it seemed to be. Structural railway engineers who were consulted about the potential for derailing a train that the diagram had indicated confirmed that it was indeed a viable threat and was incredibly dangerous. It would easily derail an express train, putting at risk the amount of lives that could potentially run into the hundreds. British Transport Police passed the letter on to Cheshire Constabulary, the force that covered crew as it detailed crew station in the letter, they subsequently passed it back to the Metropolitan Police, feeling it was best for the attention of Scotland Yard, who had, of course, only a few years before, led the hunt for Rodney Whitchallow, the baby food blackmailer that we met a couple of episodes back earlier on the series. And so were the branch better equipped and experienced to deal with an extortion plot. In accordance with normal procedures when dealing with a case of blackmail threat, Details were circulated to all police forces nationwide in a confidential bulletin. As soon as West Yorkshire Police received their bulletin, they realised that their man had resurfaced. Even if the author was referring to the plural now, 
there were too many similarities between this correspondence to British Rail and the correspondence they'd received from the kidnapper and killer of Julie Dart. There were the same complex instructions, similar dimensions and instruction for the amount of money required, the same grammatical and spelling errors, and a connection that had played on the mind of more than one investigator hunting the killer of Julie Dart, the railway connections. Railways or train stations were a recurring theme throughout the inquiry or correspondence from the killer, appearing far too often to be coincidental. Julie's body had been found near an old railway line, and the ransom drop that Julie's killer had claimed was a test run had a disused railway line heavily featured in it, as well as the suspect package that had been left near a disused railway bridge. All the letters to police or British Rail had been posted nearby to stations or at places that were all easily reached by the rail network. There was the choice of specific trains in the most recent correspondence, and the fact that the target was none other than British Rail itself. Plus, both letters detailed the couriers to be at different railway stations on the same evening. It seemed that trains or the railways played more than a passing role in the kidnapper's life, and it was something he was very familiar with. Was it his employment, perhaps, or did he have an interest in them as a pharaoh-equinologist, person who studies trains, word of the day or what, eh? It was decided, for reasons unclear but most likely simply boiling down to the fact that they had decided to call his bluff, Regional Crime Squad 9 of Scotland Yard had placed an advert as requested in the Evening Standard newspaper, but it hadn't been the same one the killer requested. Instead, the advert read, Amanda, could not make it on the 23rd, could not get on the train due to your mother's illness. Please telephone, Michael. Despite calling his bluff, Detective Constable Susan Woolley from the North West Regional Crime Squad was in place at Platform 3 and Crew Station, a place I've been stuck many times and somewhere that is always freezing. At 5 minutes to 7 on the evening of Wednesday the 23rd of October. At 8 minutes past 7 that evening, the telephone on the platform rang and DC Woolley answered it but again by defying the kidnapper's express instructions by not saying Amanda speaking. Instead, DC Woolley had just been instructed to pose as a passing member of the public who just answered the phone, and so just answered with a casual, Hello? Hello? Just like the old guy in Dirty Harry who interrupts when Callahan is being run all over San Francisco with his yellow bag. Movie I've seen so many times, my all-time favourite film, definitely Eastwood's Finest Hour. The male caller on the other end of the Platform 3 phone said, Who's that? Who are you? Before hanging up. The phone did ring again nine minutes later after this, but the caller rang off before the phone could be answered. An hour later, a WPC was in place 144 miles away at Platform number 3 of Carlisle Station, waiting for the telephone call that had been outlined in the letter of 16th of October. Despite waiting there until 9.30pm, no telephone call was received and the operation was stood down at 10pm. When no further correspondence was received from the kidnapper, the London Regional Crime Squad tried again to entice him to make contact, in the usual way of placing an advert in the London Evening Standard newspaper, this time reading, Amanda, we need to talk, we would like to help, please call Michael. In response to this, the following day, 
an angry-toned, arrogant letter was received at British Rail HQ. An extract from this letter is as follows. Congratulations, you have now qualified for retribution. Within a week or so, a small penalty will be imposed in the form of the removal of an electric locox pantograph, and with a little luck, the downing of a section of line. A suitable place has not been located, but studies are underway. This is a small demonstration I wish to perform initially to prove our determination. Following this, we shall await a message in Monday's or Friday's Daily Mail personal column within two weeks that will read, The train is now ready to depart. Failing this, our initial threat will be carried out to the letter. The day of the message in the Daily Mail, your female employee will be at the two phone boxes between platforms 1 and 3 on Crew Station at 3pm for a message. Everything must be ready at that time. I shall indicate the day and time she is to return when we are once again ready to collect your offering. No further communication will be sent. Should you fail to respond to this letter, then our satisfaction will have to be the considerable cost we have incurred upon yourselves. I shall be hoping this will be well over £2 million by the time we call it a day. Now I didn't have a clue what a pantograph was, but apparently it's the arm on the roof of a locomotive that connects with the electricity supply that runs overhead and powers the motion of a train. If this contact is broken, then power is lost and the train comes to a standstill. On Sunday the 3rd of November, a heavy block of sandstone that had been drilled through and secured with steel wire and rope was lowered over Railway Bridge 30 a bridge on a rural and minor unnamed country lane that spanned the west coast line at the village of Milmiki in Staffordshire. Chalked onto the sandstone was the message, Chief Executive of British Rail, London. The sandstone block was attached to a £20 lump of concrete. The plan was for the overhead pantograph of a train to strike the stone, bringing the concrete down from the bridge onto the power lines and causing damage and outage of power. At some point that evening, the force from a passing locomotive did dislodge the weight and it did crash down, but it missed the power lines and the train. The debris was found on the track the following day by maintenance workers inspecting the line, who were positive that it had not been there five days before when the line was last inspected. The sandstone block had shattered into pieces upon impact, and although it was pieced together, the message chalked on it was first thought to have read, chief executioner. When it was looked at, technicians were unsure in which way this device would have completely derailed a train, but there was a strong possibility that the damaged pantograph could have struck live cables of 25,000 volts, creating a potentially fatal hazard for anyone coming into contact with them. Julie Dart was finally laid to rest on Thursday 7th of November, almost four months after her murder with the coroner having recorded a verdict of unlawful killing by a person or persons unknown. It was a touching and packed service, attended by all of Julie's family and friends, as well as several of the investigating team. Morale through the investigation was low. The hunt for a killer had already cost half a million pounds, and police had little to show despite working flat out to catch a killer. They decided to go over every piece of information again and to collate it all, thinking somewhere that in all of it may be a vital clue that they've missed and that may lead them to their quarry. They also felt it was necessary to draw the killer out again. 
This was a person who was proven to be communicative, and if they could be drawn into some form of communication with police, then to an extent police would be able to exert some control. The only way the killer could be reached was through newspaper adverts, and on Monday the 11th of November 1991, the following message appeared in the Daily Mail personal columns. To all members of Travelwise, we can confirm that your train is now ready to depart. Your bridge message is received. Representatives can be contacted on the number supplied. Michael. But there was no response to this advert. Police were stationed at various points that had been used in previous attempted ransom drops but no calls were received at any of the corresponding numbers at various train stations, and eventually, after a week, the operation was stood down. Without anything else to do except pore over the evidence again, looking for something that they may have missed, police were forced to play a waiting game with a killer, waiting to hear from him when he resurfaced. And he was to resurface again, just two weeks into the new year of 1992, with a crime that was to shock the nation and one that was to make front page headlines. And that, guys, is where we shall leave this tale for this week. I hope that you found the case to be an interesting and intriguing one so far. Trust me when I say it gets more shocking. The full story is one of the most complex but interesting crimes in British criminal history, and one that definitely warrants a multi-part cover to do it justice. I wouldn't blame you for going down the rabbit hole on this one. I know I would if I was listening. And if you do, then I hope you make it back for part two anyway. Thanks very much for joining me for this episode. I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all a safe and pleasant week, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care, guys, and goodbye for now.